Well, for our text this evening in 2 Samuel 13, um, I'm going to break protocol with typical sermon delivery, which is you save your main point from later on as you build up to it. And what I want you to do is really as we go through the lesson is just see this main point uh, throughout. The title of the lesson is The Wages of Sin, and if you know the New Testament passage, your mind is filling in the rest of that, that the wages of sin is death. And in this text, what we're going to see is the wages of sin is death and so much more. Uh, Sometimes we don't think about how ugly sin really is. And that's really the focus that I want us to spend our time on tonight as we go through the 13th chapter of 2 Samuel is that we will just be stunned by the ugliness of sin. And the reason why that's important is because sometimes we can have the tendency to think, well, so what if we sin? What does it really matter? Who am I hurting? Uh, Why can't I do what I want to do? Uh, Who really cares? Why do the scriptures have to talk about sin? And one of the things that God has to constantly show us and and do for us again and again is, is just show us, I want you to see how ugly sin is and see truly what the wages of sin are. This chapter is probably one of the ugliest chapters in Scripture. I won't say that it's the ugliest. I'll reserve that for judges. That, I think, is probably some of the ugliest of texts. But this certainly probably falls in top ten of ugly texts where we see the ugliness of sin truly on display. Chapter 13 opens in telling us about One of the sons of David, his name is Absalom. Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. And one of David's other sons, Amnon, would be a half-brother to Tamar. Well, Amnon has a particular predicament. We're told there at the end of verse 1 that Amnon loves Tamar. I'll put that love in quotation marks, uh, because of verse 2, which says that Amnon is so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. Notice this, for she was a virgin and seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. We're already starting with a very disgusting beginning. And what we are seeing is here is Amnon, and he is sick with basically a self-consuming lust for Tamar. He has made himself physically ill over it because he's unable to get what he wants. In fact, though it doesn't seem like it, verse 2 is upholding the purity of Tamar. He knows that Tamar is a virgin and is pure and they are not going to have sexual immorality or run away on some escapade or meet out in the woods or something like that. It's stating Amnon knows the kind of character of Tamar and there is no way that they are going to get together. There is no way that he is going to get what he wants out of her, which is sexual relations. And so he's sick. He wants her so bad 
that he is just sick with lust. Well, one of Amnon's friends, his name is Jonadab in verse 3. He is a crafty man, we are told, and he certainly is. He sees that Amnon is just disheveled and sickened by by this and wants to know, well, what is the matter? Why do you seem so off? You are the son of the king. What are you so upset about? And Amnon explains how beautiful Tamar is and there's no way that he can have her and he doesn't know what to do and he's just sick about the whole thing. And the friend says, well, I've got an idea for you. Here's what you do is you pretend to be sick. And then tell your father to have Tamar come and feed you and make meals for you while you're sick in bed. And then that way you'll be able to have time with her. And so that is then exactly what he does. I want us to already right in the very beginning begin to see the ugliness of sin. Before you can hardly get moving in the text... There is layers upon layers of the ugliness of sin. You see already that Amnon, who could just simply say, okay, she's beautiful, but I'll just find somebody else. No, that's not good enough. He's going to be sick physically because he's so consumed by his desire, so consumed by lust which then leads to another sin where now his friend is going to help him conspire to commit sin. And please consider the horror of the conspiracy. What we will do is we will play upon the kindness of this woman. She is going to come and bring you meals and care for you. And you then can be able to use that to your own advantage and do what you want. I just want you to see this very beginning is horrible upon horrible upon horrible. Amnon doesn't say, you know, friend, that's really gross and terrible. And how do we ever just conspire like that? Especially on the kindness of this woman who will take care of me. And thought, no, no. The plan is all laid out. So in verse 7, David tells Tamar to go to Amnon's house and prepare him food. Tamar then makes the meal and and, and he sends everybody out of the room in verse 9. And as she comes in with the food, we are told in verse 11, but when when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him in verse 12, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She tries to speak reason into him and say, this doesn't make sense. You cannot do this thing. This is going to be awful for me. It's going to be awful for you. If you remember a few lessons ago, we talked about the warning flags that David had 
before he committed his sin. And here is all these warning flags of don't do this. Do not take this path. And yet what you notice next is awful in verse 14. It says there that he would not listen to her for being stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. This is more of the ugliness of sin. Is that you see then his selfish lust to then take what he wants. And if that wasn't bad enough, then verse 15 And then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. I think sometimes when you read this, you might be surprised at Amnon's reaction after taking what he wants. Verse 15 says, now that his hatred is greater than the love that he had for her. But this ultimately is the picture of the sweetness of sin, and then the bitterness of sin. And this is so often how sin operates and truly operates when it comes to sexual immorality. That he gets what he wants and now he is consumed with hatred and bitterness and anger. The sweetness of the sin now immediately is replaced with all that guilt, with all that shame. And the hatred now rises up. There are lots of stories of people who express that very truth when it comes to sexual immorality. That the temporary sweetness is then replaced with hatred, anger, bitterness, all kinds of these uh, sinful things that rise up because you've taken what you wanted. And that's what happens here now with Amnon and casts her out. One of the things you're seeing not only is the horror of sin and how ugly it is, but do we see as well how particularly selfish sexual immorality and sexual sin is? Everything that Amnon has done here is all this self-consuming lust. This sin is so selfish in what he does. And it is ultimately to such a degree that the point that Tamar is making is that he has absolutely ruined her. Now, by doing what he did, according to the law, he was supposed to marry her and take care of her so that she would not be financially ruined and financially destitute. Because 
Nobody is going to marry her now. And that's why that was built into the law that way that you read about. If you were to rape a virgin, you had to pay the fine and marry them and not divorce all the days of your life. And that's what she's expressing. You can't throw me out now that you've done this. My life is ruined. My opportunity is ruined. You've taken my purity. I have no chance at marriage. Everything has been completely ripped away from me at this moment. And that's why you see her in verse 19, this picture of horror as she tears the robe. She has ashes on her head. She has her hands on her head just crying as she goes. It's one of those things that you read this and you go, every sentence I'm going to say, and if that wasn't bad enough. Verse 20. The brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, that is interesting. (laughs) That is particularly interesting that the first response you have is, oh, did you have an encounter with Amnon? Absalom knows the character of Amnon. Amnon apparently has quite a despicable reputation. So much that the first thought that Absalom has in seeing this response of Tamar is, was it Amnon? Was it him? And in knowing that, what he does now is also despicable because in verse 20, he says, Now hold your peace, my sister, for he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. What Absalom wants to do is prepare revenge. Tamar, don't take this to the king. Don't take this to the courts and the judges who should deal with this as that ought to have been done under the law. Instead, keep it to yourself. Keep quiet. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to be the one to do something about it. Absalom now is going to use this as an opportunity for sinning himself and is now plotting his revenge against Amnon. And then if that were not bad enough, verse 21, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry, but does absolutely nothing about it. As the king of Israel, he is to be the one who would reign in righteousness and execute justice and make sure things are done right in this kingdom. And yes, David's angry, but David does nothing about it. I want us to think about for the moment here as we're moving into this horror of this chapter is that what we are seeing is that David's own sin now is causing chaos in the kingdom. Because now as this needs to be done, as a justice needs to happen against Amnon, because Amnon has been filled with lust and taken a woman and and done this, well, David, why don't you do something? Well, if you think for a minute, this is a very close mirror to the same path that David took. And so David has become like Eli very early on in the book that we saw, 
For Eli was upset as his sons, but did nothing about it. And now David is angry at his sons, but he does nothing about it. Verse 23 says that two years go by. Two years go by now. And Absalom is plotting his revenge. And now he has come up with the right opportunity. He says that he is going to have this sheep shearing get together that's going on. If you remember when we talked about that with the the events and the account with Nabal, we talked about sheep shearing in Israel was a festival. It's a feast time. It's rejoicing. And so what Absalom says is, is, let's get Amnon to come with us so he will be a part of this party and feasting that's going to go on as we shear the sheep. And so requests of David, David, make Amnon come with us. And David's like, why would Amnon go with you? But Absalom is insistent that Amnon come. And so David directs Amnon to go with Absalom after these two years. And once they are out at this sheep shearing party, Absalom tells his men, As soon as he is making merry and drunk in this festival, I want you to kill him. And so that is exactly what happens. Verse 28 is the command. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? And so in verse 29, the servants of Absalom did exactly what uh, Absalom commanded them to do. A messenger returns in verse 30 to David with a strange message. It's an incorrect message, curiously enough. In verse 30, we're told that Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and none of them is left. I'm not sure why that was the message. But verse 31, the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground and all the servants were standing there and they tore their garments. But, but, but Jonadab comes and says, no, no, that's not what happened. All the king's sons have not died. Rather, Absalom has had Amnon killed because of the day that he violated his sister Tamar in verse 32. So verse 33, therefore do not let the Lord the king take it to heart and suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. And David does nothing. In fact, the way this ends is perhaps most strange. Strangest of all is not only do you have an Absalom fleeing and he now is going to live far away for a time, but we're told there that at three years in verse 38, Absalom is in Gersher and he's hidden there. And it says in verse 39, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. What an interesting end. As time has passed by and David is able to get over the fact that Amnon is dead, he seems to long to reconcile with Absalom even though he knows he can't do that. I believe at this moment we are seeing a torn David. 
His heart goes out to his son, but his son has done wrong. What is David going to do? He's angry at what has been done, but he's not going to do anything about it. He longs for his son, but he cannot bring him back because there needs to be justice for what he's done. And so David is in a bind. And this puts us in one of the horrifying chapters in the life of David and in the life of his sons. In all that is transpiring, to see his heart go out to them, but he cannot do anything about it and does not execute justice. I stated at the beginning of the lesson that the big deal is the ugliness of sin. And what I want to do is spend the majority of our time just considering the aspects of that as it is represented in this chapter. The ugliness of sin just starts out right from the very beginning of the story and it never stops. The only innocent person you read about in the text is Tamar. Everybody else is horrifying in what they do. And clearly God is just wanting us to see the sinfulness. Amnon is stained with the ugliness of sin. Amnon's friend is is, is stained with the ugliness of sin. Absalom is full of sin. David is full of sin. And what I want us to see immediately is, did you see how sin compounded upon sin, which compounded upon sin, which compounded upon sin? Sin leads to more sin. And sin that leads to more sin, not only of ourselves, but also in other people. Think about how all of this started. Amnon's lust. Amnon's lust. Something that we would read and go, oh, who is he hurting? What's the big deal? It's such a minor thing. It's a small sin. What does it really matter? But I want you to see Amnon's sin of lust leads to Amnon's friend's sin of conspiracy to sin, which leads to Amnon's raping of Tamar, which leads to David's sin of doing nothing, which leads to Absalom's sin of taking revenge and killing Amnon, which leads to David's sin of still yet doing nothing. Just this domino awash of sin. But that is what sin does. I I don't know of a better illustration when I've tried to think of the concept of sin. Except if you've ever been to a, a, a pond or a lake and if you can get a pretty decent sized rock and try to just throw it out toward the middle of that pond and watch how far the ripples just keep going and going and go. They'll keep going until it's out of sight. The, the ripples will just go and go and go. That is exactly what sin does. 
we look at sin as, well, it's just this one simple rock and do not calculate the ripples and the ripples and the ripples that go on and on and on, not only in the life of the sinner, but also in the lives of those who surround that sinner. That's what you see happening here is that we see that sin just simply multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. It's not an innocent sin. And I hope that we will realize that no sin is that way. And it should cause us to really think about the efforts that are required on our behalf. That when we realize that there is sin in the heart, that that is no small thing. And that's no small thing. To see that in the heart of Amnon it all started. All of this sin upon sin upon sin. And it is so important for us to think about how we need to root out sin in our hearts before they lead to actions. We need to be aware of our weaknesses and where we are enticed and what our heart is doing and to root it out quickly before it dominoes into more sins. This is what James is trying to warn us about, that we are lured and enticed by our desires and pulled away from God ultimately. Because of that, so often we can only just look at the outward action and say, well, what's the harm? But what's happening in the heart is the harm. Did you notice in thinking about Amnon and Absalom, the darkening of the heart that's happening? That as their hearts are turning with wickedness and evil thoughts and intentions, that what Amnon is willing to do is horrifying. And what Absalom is willing to do is equally horrifying. And in the process of thinking about the ugliness of sin, one of the things that rises to my mind is just asking the question, what has happened to David? How can we read that David is angry does nothing two monumental events horrified ugly sins come out of his sons and David does nothing why doesn't he do something why doesn't he do something when Tamar is raped why doesn't he do something when Amnon is is murdered what has happened to our king who would rule in righteousness with justice and equity. What has happened to him? And I think this is one of the big pictures the text wants us to consider. Is how debilitating sin ultimately is. What has happened is that it appears that his own sins are interfering with his ability to rule rightly. His own sins are now impacting how he judges others. He cannot judge the guilt of of Amnon. He did nearly 
the same. And how are you going to judge the guilt of Absalom? You murdered somebody. Well, David has done that also. Sin is so debilitating. It is the problem of sin that so often I think we can fail to grasp is that it causes us to be unable to see our own sins clearly as well as it causes us to be unable to see the sins of others clearly. And that's why I believe he can't judge properly at this moment. Why he's unable to respond. Why we see no reaction, no response, no justice, no judgment. Because it keeps us from acting as we ought to act. It blinds us. It gives us bias. It colors us from seeing the truth of what needs to happen. And this, I think, is a really important aspect of what God is trying to teach us. The reason we of our own abilities, intellect, intelligence cannot comprehend truth of our own is because we are colored by our sins. This is the point that the Apostle Paul is making in Ephesians 4, verse 17. I use a different translation because it's a text that I've quoted a lot about. I'll give you a different rendering of it because it hits the point of what Paul's trying to get at. So Ephesians 4, verse 17. I am telling you this. I insist on it in the Lord. You shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles anymore. They base their lives on pointless thinking and they are in the dark in their reason. Reasoning. They are disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed hearts. They're people who lack all sense of right and wrong and who have turned themselves over to doing what feels good and to practicing all sort of corruption along with greed. Paul's telling us about your darkened in your mind, your futility in your understanding. Your sins mean you cannot see truth clearly. And that is what has happened here. Is that's exactly what sin does. Is it causes us to be unable to see what truth really is. What is truly right and wrong. Because sin has messed us up. I think it's interesting to see in the whole of this text and the picture of what is happening. That we have been brought to a point that as we've traveled through these books and traveled through these chapters, that we were on the brink of hope. Do you remember that first Samuel was all about trying to bring about hope? The end of Judges was there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. And the implication is we need a king who's going to turn the hearts of the people so that people are no longer doing 
what is right in their own eyes. And we saw with Samuel prophecies coming. The light of Israel has not gone out. There's going to be a faithful priest. We are going to have somebody who will rise up and be the one to deliver. We will have a righteous king. And we were shown that Saul was not the answer. And so we have had our pinned our hopes on David. Surely David is the one. He is going to be the one after God's own heart. Look at how faithful he is. Look at how righteous he is. Look at how he is dependent upon God. Look at how humble he is. And now we come into chapter 13. And really the kingdom has been plunged into absolute hopelessness. That the cycle of sins have started all over again. Remember at the beginning of 1 Samuel we saw Eli... And he's unwilling to do anything to his sons, and his sons are despicable. And we moved a little bit forward, and we saw Samuel, and the picture seemed to be, oh, Samuel, he's going to be the one, but remember his sons. And the people of Israel came to Samuel and said, your sons are not like you. They don't follow in your ways. So we need a king. And so David rises up. And how is it looking for the sons of David? Horrible. The kingdom is being plunged into hopelessness. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes again. Amnon wants something, take it. Absalom wants something, take it. The one of the big points that God is trying to get across to us over and over and over again is there is no human who can be the solution to the problem. Because the text has tried to lead us to the point of it's David. And it's not. And it's not David's sons. But we have been left with a huge problem with all of the hopelessness that surrounds the text. Human leaders cannot save us. Not a single human can. And it doesn't matter who we keep trotting out. Not a single one is going to work. Will it be Abraham? No. Isaac? No. Jacob? No. Moses? No. Joshua? No. One of the great judges? No. Samuel? No. Saul? No. David? No. The text is trying to show us that humanity cannot put its hope in humanity. If we think that somebody, some human, is going to make all the changes, make everything better, be the answer, be the solution, be the help that we've always needed, this is the one who's going to change the nation, change the world, change the culture, you will be wrong. No human can do it. And one of the reasons why 
is because every human is colored by their own sin and cannot judge as a sinless, righteous judge. That's the hope that is laid out for what we're ultimately needing. We need a sinless judge who can judge righteously because he's not conflicted by sin. He's not going to be colored by sin. He's not going to have a bias. He's not going to go, I can't judge that because I did that. We need somebody who can apply truth properly. In a long about way, what I'm trying to get at is sometimes the challenge that we have as we argue over what is truth, what is right, what is wrong, what should we do, what should we not do, is to realize that the reason we must listen to Jesus is because he is the only one who has not been tainted by sin and is able to clearly see and proclaim what truth is. We cannot. We're colored. We have bias. We're tainted. And we're all going to lean and bend based on our sins. Or with David, the sins of your kids. Or the people in your life. There is only one person and this is why he has to come from heaven. He cannot be just mere human. He's going to be a sinner. We need the perfect judge. We need God to send us a king who can tell us truth and show us truth. And then ultimately then what we must do is submit to what he says because by faith we understand. That only he can say what truth is and not me. And as soon as I become the one who tries to evaluate what that truth is, I fail to realize how colored and biased and tainted I am by my own sin. I have to accept what he says as truth. Because as Paul said, we're darkened in our understanding and we're following after our own desires. We're trying to deal with this warring of the flesh and we must trust in what God says. Which then leads to the final point. If we must look through this life in the lens of what God has done for us through the Son and that the wages of sin is truly death, then the only answer to the world's problem is Jesus. We sit back and man, the world's got a lot of problems and everything is a mess. Yep, it is. And there's only one answer. There's only one solution. There's only one hope. And that only hope is that for all people to submit to the truth of Christ. That's it. There is no other answer. There is no other savior. There is no one who can fix this boat or right the ship. Except people submitting to the truth of Christ.
David looks like the one who could certainly change Israel. And even he will plunge the kingdom into further darkness because of his own sins, his own inability to execute justice as it ought to happen. Please see the ugliness of sin and how much that taints our ability to recognize what is right and what is wrong. That's why we come to the word of God and we allow it to inform us of what is truth, what is error, what is right and what is wrong. Because our definitions are broken and our sins have wrecked our lives. Let's go to God in prayer as we conclude. Our Heavenly Father, what an unbelievable picture that you have left for us that truly just depicts the horror of sin. God, I pray that it would just impress upon our hearts to such a degree that we would never excuse our sins or allow sin to reside in our hearts or to ever think that our sins are small or minimal. God, help us to see this. Help us to never excuse ourselves for what we've done. And Lord, help us to not be callous toward our sins. But to see the selfishness, to see the ugliness, and to see the hurt that comes from our sinning. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us our need for a king who can rule in righteousness. God, forgive us for when we've tried to look to humans to be our deliverance. Forgive us for when we've tried for other people to be our hope, and to be our rescue. Lord, forgive us for when we've tried to save ourselves or think that we're not that bad. And forgive us for the times that we have argued against your truth, thinking that we see more clearly than you. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Make us always aware that we are colored by sin and that all that we need is to see you just more clearly, to look at your word more carefully, and that we would submit to every bit of what you say because you have truth, because you're sinless and we are not. God, forgive us for the horrifying things that we have done in our lives. Forgive us for when we have not been right, we have not reflected you, we have chosen to sin instead of serving you. Forgive us, Lord. And in the days ahead, we pray that we would not only be more faithful, but that we would no longer minimize our sins before you, to see them for what they are, to rip them out of our hearts, And Lord, we pray that you'd give us the courage to do that every day as we walk with you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.